Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Hope Through Grief. I'm one of the co-hosts, Steve Smelsky, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Marshall Adler. Hello, everybody. Hope everybody's doing very well today. We decided to do something a little bit different today. We've got a special guest on today, Miss Elizabeth Smelsky. She actually happens to be my niece, and she grew up around Jordan and our family, and we've known each other an awful long time. And we asked her to come on today's episode to share her story about loss with Jordan. And then she actually lived with us for a couple of years after Jordan had passed. And we wanted to talk a little bit about what it's like living in a house of a lot of grieving people. So we'll see how the conversation goes. And I know Elizabeth's has some stories to share with us. So Marshall, you want to kick us off? Sure. Elizabeth, uh, thanks so much for agreeing to be our guest today. And I know that I've heard so many uh, stories from Steve about you. So I'm glad I got a chance to see you face to face over the computer, even though we can't do it uh, in real life. We're doing it virtually. So I'm always interested in different dynamics and different relations. You know, Steve and I got very close with each other from grief share. We both obviously lost sons and we, you know, there's all saying we both belong to a club. Nobody wants to be a member of, but we are. And so I think we have a connection and an understanding what it's like as a father to lose a son. And obviously Shelly and my wife, Debbie have a bond and understanding what it's like to be a mother to lose a son. Yours is different because my understanding is you really consider Jordan like a little brother. So if you could maybe just sort of start out by telling me your relationship with Jordan, it'd be a good place to start. And then we can sort of see where it goes from there. Hi, uh, thank you for having me today. So Jordan, while he wasn't my biological brother, was always, it's hard for me to remember a time he didn't exist. And uh, he was such a big personality. I think that overwhelms the first like 10 years too without him. But ever since he was born, he, even his first few years, he stayed at our house during the week. My mother watched him while Steve and Shelly worked. And so we would come home from school and he was there. And so that, you know, was five days a week. And at one point, a couple of days a week. So really from the moment he was born, it felt like he was a part of our family. And we always joked, I have a brother and a sister, so we're a family of five, but we always joked that our family wasn't complete until Jordan was staying with us and that we were always meant to have that fourth kid in our family and just always felt complete that way. And we always grew up with him. My biological brother and Jordan actually share a birthday. So they were born on the same date. And so that was always a big deal. Because we would get together, you know, Steve, Shelley, and Jordan would come over, and it was all of us. And I think we all agreed that things always felt complete when we did that. And there was a special, just to be two families that hung out all the time like that, and to really feel like we felt like one family. And so in that regard, I do think of Jordan a lot as a brother more so than just a cousin sometimes. I just felt very close to him. And so when I did lose Jordan 
it was actually my first experience with grief and my first experience with loss. You know, we were figuring all of that out as a family and how drastically and quickly things changed. We're actually away on vacation. My mother and my sister and I, when Jordan passed, we were all the way across the country. And I remember that when Steve and Shelly were texting my mom and they kept telling us, like, Jordan's not feeling good. And we thought, well, that happens all the time. And then it became more serious. But, you know, oh, it's meningitis, but he's going to get better. We're at the hospital. But in my memory, you know, it was so fast. Within a couple of days, it went from we were going to be home and we had plans to see them shortly after getting home to he was gone. And we weren't even here. We weren't here in Florida. When that happened. One thing we struggled with, you know, as a family, was just how quickly things had changed and how you have this clear vision of how your future is supposed to be and what your family is. And it never crossed my mind that it wasn't going to be like that or that Jordan Jordan of all would be the one that was taken away in that time. Right. You know, I, one thing that I've learned is after a man's passing is there's one guarantee in life. And that guarantee is there's no guarantees. Everything you think is guaranteed is an illusion. It's the present, but it doesn't mean it's the future. And, you know, I'm hearing you say that it's interesting because you weren't there. Like I just think back, you know, my, I've said this before in the podcast, my parents lost two sons. One was older, one was younger than me. And I really didn't know either one, but my parents grieved their whole life, especially my mother, literally on her deathbed, she was grieving the loss of two sons. They're both about three, two, 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 three years old when they, when they passed. But with Jordan, I, it, it sort of reminds me, my father was born in 1921, before the age of antibiotics. And he told me a story, I'll never forget this. When he was six years old, he was out playing with, with his friend. And his friend fell and cut his finger, scraped or something. No big deal, right? Again, this is before antibiotics. And he got an infection, wasn't feeling well, couldn't come out to play the next day. The day after that, he had to go to the hospital. The day after that, they started asking people to give blood for transfusion. The day after that, he passed away. It wasn't the amoeba like Jordan, but it was pre-antibiotic. You know, that same scrape or whatever it was today probably be just given a broad-based antibiotic and, you know, be fine. But obviously medical science does not have an answer for the amoeba. So what you're saying, it just sounds, oh, he's at the hospital, he'll be fine. And Steve and I have talked about this, you know, what, again, it's not, it's what is worse. Is it worse getting shocked the way Steve and Shelley were and the way Debbie and I were? Or is it worse to, we've had guests where there's been 
horrific long-term illnesses like cancer, where you just know that this person's prognosis is not good. And I've had many friends who've had a glioblastoma brain tumor, and you know medically the odds are so stacked, or pancreatic cancer. And I don't know what's worse. So from, from your standpoint, you said this was your first experience with grief. How did you deal with the suddenness of it and the unexpected nature where everybody's life just took a horrific turn that nobody saw coming? I think at at first there wasn't, I don't want to say there wasn't a lot of dealing with it, but there was a long period of, I think, just even trying to wrap our minds or wrap my mind around what happened because the choice of being there to see someone when they pass away or, you know, a lot of my family got to see Jordan in the hospital and I've heard what that experience was like for them to be there in those last few days and to actually be there at the day of. And for my mother, my sister and I, we didn't have that choice because we didn't, you know, we, we left to fly home as quickly as we could, as soon as we knew. And honestly, it's amazing to me that we got home the way we did because we had three flights to get home from out in the middle of national parks in you know Utah. And it was three flights with about an hour maybe in between each flight. And somehow we made all three and we got home. We were home by you know 8 p.m. that night, sometime that night. And I remember when we were out where we were, my first thought as soon as I knew that Jordan had passed, I want to be home. I need to go home. My heart was pulling me to be somewhere else. And you know, that's when we, we figured out the flights. We got home as soon as we could. And we came home to Stephen Shelley's house where it was, as you guys say, like, you know, the house was the grieving. A family was grieving. Everyone was already grieving there. And I think that was kind of the surreal first start of the process because I think there was some... Some part of me that hoped that it was a misunderstanding. You know, I'm not seeing it. It can't be true. He was 11 years old. How can someone have gone from perfectly fine to almost seemingly a day or two later gone? You know, how, how do you wrap your head around that? Especially when you think of children that age as you don't think of losing someone that age. It just doesn't even cross your mind. It doesn't seem like it's even an option for that to happen. So I think starting our grieving process was having to face the reality of it. And it took, I feel like it took a few months for me before I could start to really address the grief. And like I said, this was my first experience with loss. I don't think any loss is necessarily easy to deal with by any means. There's something that feels wrong or out of place when it's someone younger or younger than you. And so there was a sense of having to accept that understand that so that I could begin to figure out what what does grief look like uh, how do I even go about a process uh, I'm trying to think of 
steps or like all that kept popping in my head was I, I knew somewhere that there were steps to grief. I knew I had heard it at right. some point in my life. And I was like, well, there, there's got to be a, there's a procedure. There is a system that I am supposed to go through and that's what fixes it. That's what right. makes this work. And probably the biggest thing I've learned through my experience is that it does not work that way. No, and it I think I was looking for a bandaid. I was looking for something that was going to heal this. You know, I felt like a part of me was missing. And um, I sometimes equated it to, it's almost like, like a loss of a limb or a loss of something where like I had to figure out how to keep going and doing all the things I was used to doing, but with this piece missing. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even sure what was missing and how to go about that. And at the time I was in college, I was 21 and I was, you know, college is not the place for grief as, as weird as that may sound. Just about everything about college is kind of the opposite. You know, there's a lot of an expectation and futures and goals and dreams. And those are not any of the things you're thinking about or at least for myself when I was going through grief, you know, being around people that had all these dreams and future aspirations. And I had them, I knew I had things I had to pursue, but I was trying to figure out how to balance that with the, just the huge loss going on. And I didn't know what to do at the time. How did you do it? Because, you know, what you're saying about grief, I can absolutely relate to because, you know, I've said this before, I, I'll talk about Steve. Steve started the course by saying, we're all strangers. You know, how, I'm sure all of you people here have taken courses on grief. How many people have taken courses on grief? And everybody's looking around like, are you kidding? Who would ever want to take a course on grief? You never would until you're in it. And then you're saying, okay, how do I do this? And there's no roadmap. And that's the thing we had to go through. And I think Grief Share was great for us to sort of give us a path that, again, everybody's going to find their own path, but a path to do that. But you learn at a young age, there is no fix. There is no, this is the path from one plus one equals two playing a teacher this, right? Um, I'll just digress for a second. My, I always throw jokes and my, my grandmother was dying in 1967 and we flew down from Buffalo. She was actually in Miami Beach and obviously she was a Jewish woman and she was at a Catholic hospital and I'll never forget this. She's literally on her deathbed and my dad was like this and my mother was like this, always using humor. And there's a big crucifix right over her bed. Okay. She's a Jewish woman. And my dad asked her like, mom, how do you feel about having the big crucifix over your bed? And she looked at him and said, at this point, if he can help me, I'm all in favor of it. <laughs> you know? I was 11 years old. And that was sort of my first feeling of, my grandfather died three years earlier, but I was seeing my grandmother die and she used humor with it. So 
for us to go to the church was fine because if we could help. So I'm interested, how, how did you make that realization and say, how do I go forward from here? Well, so about a month or two after Jordan had passed, I was in a position where I needed somewhere to live. For, and Shelly, you know, I don't even remember exactly how it came about, but she kind of threw out, well, what if you lived with Steve and I? Um, you know, at a point where all the family had left, you know, you talk about how a lot of the, how a lot of family comes to support you during your grief right. and, and your, your house oddly can feel so full during a time where you feel so empty, but at some point it leaves, you know, that support leaves. And I think that point had just happened and most of the family was gone. And so she threw out this idea, how would you feel about living with us? You know, we're not that far from the college campus you're going to. And you can commute. And it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And so I moved into their house. Uh, Actually, I was the bedroom down from Jordan's bedroom. And we kind of started, I think, to see each other through this grief process. The one people talk about is how people grieve so differently. And something I think you really don't understand until you see it. And until you experience that, because there's a, I feel like there's a thought that, well, if I'm feeling this, he's feeling that, and she's feeling this, and we're all feeling it either at the same time or at the same severity, and that that's really not how it works. And, you know, I almost feel like we started to see everyone would take turns in a sense. You know, someone was having a harder day than someone else or a harder moment, and we had to learn how each other grieved. And I had to see, you know, two people that I cared about so deeply and were like a second set of parents to me going through feelings and emotions that I couldn't fix. You know, you have this, this feeling inside when you see someone you love hurting. And I think you, you innately want to make it better. You want to find a way, but I had to quickly learn that there, there was no way I was going to make this better for myself, Uncle Steve, for Aunt Shelley. Um, I can really clearly remember one day where I saw my Aunt Shelley out on the porch and just, she was, she was crying and she was, you know, talking herself through a really hard moment. And it made me cry because I could just hear the heartbreak and hear all the pain in her crying And I remember just so strongly wanting to make it better. I wanted to help her. And to the point where I called my dad and I I just said, dad, what do I do? How do I help her? How do I make this moment better for her? And I just remember he said, you can't. There's nothing you can do that's going to fix this moment for her. But you can just be there. And you make sure that she knows that you're there. Whether she needs you in that moment. Or whether it's a private grieving moment. Because I feel like anyone that's gone through grief knows that sometimes you just kind of need to be alone in your feelings. And you don't, you're not looking for someone to console you. You just, you just need to have your feelings. So I just tried hard to let them know that I was there. Whether it was to talk or just to have someone to sit with, 
or, you know, we started going on walks or we would try to find some type of thing to do. And I think that was the biggest thing I tried was just to make sure that they knew I was there if and when they needed it. Um, Were you, I'm not, not, not to try to be funny here, but obviously you were family, but I, I think some people are almost afraid of grief and the thing in the sense they think it's contagious and it is contagious because we're all human and we live in this planet long enough, either we're going to die and people are going to grieve us or we're going to live and people we love are going to die. So it is contagious, but it must've been brave for you to go into a, you know, a household of grief. How old were you when you did that? 21. Okay. That's, that speaks well of you because that's not easy. I know people two, three, four times your ages, that wouldn't do that. They just said, I can't handle this. I mean, did you have any trepidations at all about that or? You know, I didn't. Um, I really didn't think all that much about it. I think maybe because I had, I was feeling so lost at the time myself because I was starting my major classes in college. I was studying education. And so every, there was just a lot of change going on at this point. You know, I had moved, I was grieving. I was studying new things at college even like friends relationship wise, I had learned through kind of quickly in the grieving process that sometimes there were friends who expected me to kind of pop back and just quote, be normal. And for me, I didn't know what that was and whether they didn't understand the severity of my grief or whatever that was for them, they couldn't understand why I couldn't be I used to be. You know, they would say, oh, let's let's go out. Let's go to this party. Let's go do this activity. And that was the farthest thing from what I wanted to do. I really just felt so lost in my feelings and was looking for, I think, myself a way to figure and understand those. And I think a part of me felt that the same way I had the strong feeling of I had to come home right after Jordan passed and I knew that's where I needed to be. A part of me just felt like this is where I needed to be to figure out myself and to start figuring out those feelings and to figure out what is grief and how. And how was I going to process it? Because I also feel like I, I learned early that it was not something I was going to get over. It was not anything that was going to get behind me so much as it was something I was going to learn to get through. And it was something I was going to learn to have with me every day. And that it wasn't going anywhere. And so I could face it and I could figure it out or I could hide it and I could hide from it, which is something, you know, everyone does at some point when you just put it aside because you need to, to get through what you're doing in that moment. Um, I can remember a time, um, speaking of how people grieve differently. And process things differently. My brother, my biological brother, he's a very internal guy. And he's a very, very smart, but not always out seeking, you know, a bunch of people and a bunch of social interaction. And I remember 
earlier on this, you know, he, they shared a birthday, Jordan and my brother. And I remember someone asking me, does he even miss Jordan? I just looked at them, you know, and this was early. This was in the first Mm -hmm. month or two. And I remember looking at them and I I just, I don't understand. What do you mean? Because to me, I'm like, obviously he misses Jordan. And they said, well, he doesn't show it. You know, he's not crying or he's not talking about it. And I think my defensive big sister kicked in and I just said, wait, that's him. And that's him processing and him grieving and him figuring out how he's going to live with his feelings for the rest of his life. And without even consciously realizing at the time, I had learned my first lesson of how people can grieve differently and how people can process things differently. And that, you know, for some people, it's not an outward show of emotion in the same way. My Aunt Shelley might want to cry in a moment, but my brother, that's not what he would want to do. They may be having very similar feelings and similar strengths of emotions at the time, but that's just not how they're processing it. So speaking of like living with people going through grief, you have to, you have to be willing to learn that almost that grief language of each individual and how, how they process it and what help them get through those feelings. It's interesting you mentioned that because I think you know that my mother died two days after my son died. So we had two funerals, two obituaries, and two eulogies I had to do. And again, in our family, we just use humor as a defense mechanism. And I will tell you, I have never been to a funeral my entire life. I haven't laughed. I laugh at every single funeral I've ever gone to, including my son's and my mother's. A lot of laughing, a lot of laughter. And before the funerals, I just was on the internet and I saw this guy's article whose son died by suicide. And he was saying at the reception at his son's at his house for his son's after the funeral, he was laughing and people were, he heard that people were talking about him saying, what's wrong with him? How could he be laughing at his son's service for his son's funeral when he died by suicide? And his comment was great. He goes, that's my grief. That's the way I grieve. My son would want me to do this. And what everybody else thinks is irrelevant. And Matt, Matt was really funny. Matt was a really funny guy. He just was. He made me laugh. The last time I talked to him, he made me laugh. He just was always funny. And at his funeral, all of his friends, you know, were there and they were crying. And I was consoling them, which was ironic. But then we just started telling mad stories and the tears became like uproarious laughter and it was the best medicine. So I think the first thing you got to rule, you know, to me, the first rule of grief is there are no rules. Whatever you can do to get through that day, do it. As long as it's not illegal, immoral, or hurting somebody else, do it. Whether it's, 
a big thing to realize that there's not a right or wrong to it, like you said, and that people are going to grieve differently or express their feelings differently. And it's it's not a right or wrong. It's it's just your process getting through, you know, whatever it is. And that because I think grief is one of those things you think you understand before mm-hmm. you go through it. And then when you go through it, you have a very different understanding of, of what it is and how it feels. And that as a society can be some judgments put on it. You know, this is how a funeral should be. This is how your grieving process should be. This is how long your grieving process should be. And, you know, at a certain time, they just kind of expect, well, things are going to go back to quote, back to normal, rather than realizing that may not exist anymore. That me may be different. You know, my life has completely shifted. I had to learn what I was judging because I didn't understand how anyone could be normal right now because in my world, everything had changed. Everything was different. So how could I be going to class with people who are just, they're worried about midterms and, and tests and reading a chapter. And for me, I'm trying to figure out how to go about the rest of my life. And I remember I went to one grief share with Stephen Shelley. I don't remember who talked who into it. It was definitely something they wanted. Like the grief share in general was, was their, their process. And I ended up going to one class. And I think one thing that struck me so much right away was the vast variety of the griefs, meaning that you had everything from Stephen Shelley, who had lost an 11 year old to people who had lost older siblings, brothers, sisters, parents, grandparents, you know, down to People had lost life before I'd even been born, you know, miscarriages and things like that. And I remember looking around this room and my brain wanted to quantify grief early on. It, it wanted to figure out whose grief is more severe or they wanted to compare them and relate them and and somehow put numbers and measures to all of this because that's that's what my brain wanted to do to understand it. Because here I was dealing with a topic I didn't really understand. Now i in a room full of people going through it. And I remember judging. I remember having feelings of, you know, well, how can you be grieving this many years later? Or how can this be happening? Or why are your feelings as strong as my feelings? And I had to sit back and really, really assess that. And one, what made me think I knew what anyone else was going through? I had the same feelings about others when I said, like, well, what makes you think you know what I through. Well, here I was on the flip side of that, kind of putting my thoughts onto someone else. And I remember that being a real eye-opener for myself because I it was such a negative moment for me. I don't know if that makes sense, but I <laughs> I was frustrated with myself. How could I have I just put these people in a position that I don't like being in? And yet I still did it. I still judged or tried to equate and compare. And that's a big moment for me, really learning that grief is really something that can't be compared. You know, it can be shared, it can be experienced, but you can't compare one person's grief to another person's grief in terms of trying to make one more or less than another or one. Well, yes, you definitely have a right to your grief because of who you lost, but you know what? You shouldn't be feeling as much grief because maybe they were older. It was, you know, whatever it was, 
ultimately, as a human being, your experiences in life are all you have to go on. And so whatever grief you're going through, whatever life experiences you have had that have led you to this moment, that is what helps you go through it. And that's what helps you work through your feelings. And and like we said, how there's no right or wrong. I think that was one of the bigger moments when I learned that is that everybody's entitled to those feelings and beyond entitled to them, like it's a necessity. You have to process it and you have to go through it and that you have to just learn to be there for others and really just try to let the quantifying and the (laughs) figuring it out. It's not a mathematical process. It's not steps. Even if people want to put steps to it, you know, I know you guys have talked about how steps move more fluidly than necessarily one through this and then you're done. And I think that that all plays into it, that it's such a fluid process and it kind of takes on its own life in a sense when it happens. And we're just almost kind of along to experience it and figuring it out and learn how it is for me and what it's going to be for me. How have you changed in the sense that you talked about your friends wanted to go out and do things and you couldn't imagine doing that and being in school, worrying about this midterm or this reading assignment and I'm sure it felt so frivolous to you, but obviously you did finish school. You do have a job. You work as a school teacher. So you have to sort of weigh the realities of functioning in the world versus the person that existed before Jordan's passing. I've said this, you know, the person that existed before Matt's passing is gone, never to come back. It doesn't mean that I don't laugh. It doesn't mean that I don't enjoy doing a lot of things that I did before, but I just see things entirely differently. You know, I've said this, you know, I I dream about Matt every single night, every single night. And I, I wake up and he's alive in my dreams and I wake up and he isn't when I wake up. That's just my reality. And it's been over two years now. This could be my reality till I take my last breath and I'm fine with it. It's my relationship with Matt now, but how have you changed and how do you deal with that dichotomy of knowing you are different, but the world isn't? Yes. That's such a big point to make because that was one of my biggest struggles. I felt different, but the world around me hadn't really changed. You know, my, my world had changed, but in the big scheme of things, it was just another day. And I, you know, going to school, I just had to start making goals just like you would if it was get up and take a shower today. It was, well, I need to read this chapter today. I need to work on this assignment today. And I think a part of me, I'm kind of on a spiritual level, really liked the idea of going to work with kids. And I wanted to get to that goal. And I wanted to pay back all those positive feelings I still had. You know, in my mind, Jordan, he, he's 11 and he's always this elementary kid. You know, he had just finished fifth grade. And I just so badly wanted to get to a point where I was I was there. I was working with kids that age and I was 
in order to do that, I had to, I had to get through college and I, there are just certain things you learn you have to do. I imagine it would be the same if I had had a job at the time and I would just, I'd have to do certain things. And sometimes it was more hard than others. Um, I remember one day in class, my teacher showed a video about a comedian and he had a joke essentially about birthdays and how pointless it was that we celebrated them because all we were celebrating was that someone had made it another year. And I remember being so offended by this joke. You know, here I was two, three months after losing Jordan and you have the audacity to make a joke about making it a year. I would kill for a year. I would, you know, to get one more year with Jordan. Absolutely. I would celebrate a year. I would celebrate a month. I I feel like it made my life perspective change in that regard. Whereas here was a person who he saw birthdays as so mundane, you know, so boring that we celebrate another life with a person on this planet. And I would do anything in the world to get less than a year with a person, you know, this person that I had lost. And so I cherished moments more, I think. And it's less about it's less about the longevity of things. Like I, I think I don't think necessarily of things in such long terms anymore because you know you used to have this picture of your life and you you thought you knew what things were going to be and how it was going to turn out. And on a dime, it was different. There's another funny quote that goes something like, "Life is what happens when you're making other plans." And I always John kind of think of that one. John Lennon said that. So, yeah, it is. It's a John Lennon quote. It's a great quote. It just feels so true that here we were living life, making plans, doing things. And lo and behold, life had other plans for us. And it wasn't going to pan out the way we wanted it and the way we expected. So I think I changed in the way that I want to cherish things more. And I want to... I'm more about the experience and, and less about all the way down the road or sometimes not even the big picture. Like I, I want to embrace the small thing that happened and just be happy about it. I, time with family is so important to me now and not really in a sad way or anything, but just that I know what it's like to not have it now. And so I want to cherish every moment I can. I almost feel sorry for people that don't feel that way, that they almost take things for granted. I don't want to take anything for granted. I don't want to have, you know, any regrets of, Oh, well, I should have spent more time with them. I just want to embrace my life day to day and really know that I have loved everybody as much as I can. And I have been there for them as much as I can, because at the end of the day, I won't regret that. What you said is really interesting because I think Steve and I talked about this before that as crazy as it seems, sometimes I'd leave the grief share meetings and you see the world going on and I'd feel sorry for them on the outside because we on the inside have already gotten that call. We've already gotten the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody has happened to us and we've survived. And 
the totality of the world that thinks, oh, I'm immune to that. I feel so sorry for those people in grief share. Pity those poor souls. Nobody's immune. Those people on the outside, they're going to be on the inside sooner or later. It's just the reality of it. And at least we are on the inside looking out, still upright, still here. And when you said that, it was made me think of that because, again, nobody wants to lose anybody. But newsflash, everybody's going to lose people. It's reality. Either you're going to be dead or people you love are going to be dead. That's just the, the hard facts of life. And that's what grief's about. And if you haven't experienced it, buckle up. It's coming. Right. And even, you know, even people that can be really close to you and and they even may be going through the grief because they've lost the person you've lost as a friend or as someone they know in their life. You know, it's, it's a little closer to home for you because it was a family member. But for them, you know, it was a friend. It was a person in their life. And even still, I would I would catch people say things or you guys may have, have people say things to you that I know they don't mean it wrong, but the way it comes across, you're kind of like, why in the world would you say that? Yeah. And sometimes even close family and family that are like friends or friends that are like family might say things like, you know, early with Stephen Shelley, people would text me and say, well, how are Stephen Shelley doing today? And I would text them back and I would say, well, how about you, you text them? Or how about you call them? Because what am I going to say? Oh, they're great? No, they're grieving. This is a hard time. And, you know, I can say we got up today and that was our, you know, that was what we accomplished today. Early on, that was a big accomplishment. But a part of me just really wanted to keep telling these people, call, call them. You text them. Why are you texting me? And they say, oh, well, I don't want to bother them. I know that they're going through a lot. And that almost just felt, it felt so weird to me because I thought here, here are people who are feeling so alone right now because they're going through such a big loss and you're worried that you're going to bother them by reaching out to let them know that you're there. You know, if they don't want to talk, if they're not in a place to talk, they won't, you know, they'll make that decision for themselves. They won't look at their phone to text you back or they won't answer the phone call. But I think it's so important that you, you make that attempt to reach out and you show them that I'm here. Even if it's just like a hello text, you know, I would tell these friends and I'd say, send them a hello text and see if they text you back. But even on some of their harder days, you know, we'd, we'd be eating dinner and they would say, you know, so-and-so just texted me today. And all it said was hello, or all it said was I'm thinking of you or just an emoji, a heart, something like that. And it meant so much to them just to know that in their hardest time, while this world around them was continuing to go on and these families, these friends were continuing to have to deal with their lives, that they cared enough to stop and say, say hello, say, hey, I'm thinking of you. And that yet for these people, they felt like they were such an inconvenience. And to me, I I would almost laugh at it. And I would say that's I'd text them. You know, if you want to know how I'm doing, I can, I'll tell you. But if you want to know how they're doing, reach out to them. Ask them. It's interesting. I, I think some of this, what I mentioned earlier, I think it's the contagious fear that if you reach out to somebody's grieving, that may come into my house. And that's the last thing I want in my house is grief. And also 
fear of saying something inappropriate or whatever, which when you're grieving, I know you see it, but you almost become numb to it. You know, like how many times have we heard, oh, you know, just different comments. And I've heard some, we go to grief share and we also go to halos, which is a suicide survivor support group. And some of the people there have just said they've had friends and loved ones say things where they just want to punch them in the face. They don't, but they're just saying that they're so, the comments are so inappropriate and you sort of got to get used to it when it's your grief because people are just, don't know what to do. It's their fear, their whatever. So I think that sort of relates to what you were saying, that you almost feel sorry for people on the outside because at least for us on the inside, it's real. We're not, we're not faking this. We're not playing this out in our heads. This, this is reality. And we have to deal with the reality every moment. And it's in some ways like that, it's almost, um, pure because it's not fake. You can't fake grief. It it hits you like a ton of bricks. So I was going to say, Elizabeth, most people may not know that you actually tutored Jordan for a while. I don't remember if it was one year or two years. Um, I think I tutored him for one year. One year. Uh, I know we've had Hudson. Hudson tutored him as well. I earned that year. He was he was one tough cookie. I teach <laughs> 18 plus kids a day that are his age. I he is he makes you earn your money for the day. He he could be difficult, but I know you had a couple cases where people had said some things to you that were like I, I know you had one story you had told me that somebody brought up amoebas or something. And um how did you deal with some of the comments? So the story you're thinking of, one day I had a parent come in um, with her daughter and they, so I teach elementary. So the daughter was nine, I think. And they came in and they were talking about some activity they want to do for the weekend, maybe get away for the weekend. They were going to go jet skiing and tubing this. And the mom was apprehensive about this trip. And she had said, how, you know, oh, well, my fear is the amoeba, you know, you hear about it. But then again, you know, my husband says it's so rare. Why are we even worrying about it? It's no big deal. And here I was, it was, uh, I was actually in my internship. So I was, you know, a year after losing Jordan. And I just looked at her and I said, actually, I lost someone very close to me. He was 11 to an amoeba, you know, just a year ago. And she just stopped in her tracks because here, you know, to her, she was just having a very normal, little lighthearted conversation. People joke about amoebas, which I get for most people. It's rare when it's your person. It does not feel rare at all. And so and I told her the story and I I gave her a bracelet that uh, I always have bracelets on me. And I gave her mine and I said, here, you're welcome to have this website on it. If you're going to go have an, you know, an activity with your kids, I would love for you to be informed and just know what you can do to protect your children. And that if it is a worry of yours, you're not unfounded in your worry, you know, because we are the prime example of someone's loss from it, of what could happen. You know, if you had this very small, very rare 
thing as she, you know, kept calling it. And I wasn't mad. I wasn't upset. I almost just felt in that instance, I almost felt like I was just in the right place to talk to her and tell her something and, and be able to share my story. And sometimes people will say the wrong thing and they don't know it's the wrong thing in their mind, not the wrong thing. And again, I think it goes back to some of that judgment part um, where who am I to really judge? They're trying, they're saying something. I, one instance I can think of, I've heard it so many times with Stephen Shelley was, uh, oh, well, you lost your child. If I lost my child, I'd never be able to get up. I don't know how you're out of the house. I don't know how, and you know, you're going about this, whatever task it is you're doing. I'd never get up again. And I get in some aspect, I think they're trying to relate to the feelings like, oh, I know what that feeling must be. You're so strong for getting up and going about what you're doing. And I, we would try so hard and we'd talk about it afterward. And honestly, sometimes it would happen so much. We'd almost laugh about it. We would just look at each other when the people walked away and just kind of have to laugh because we knew how ridiculous it was what they were saying, but to them, they really didn't mean it that way. They, you know, like I said, I think they were trying to relate or understand or empathize. And you almost want to tell them, you know, the option is you get up, you, you do what you need to do, or you don't. Those are really the two options you have there. And the don't option isn't an option. At some point, you have to get up and keep going or you quit. And... So I just find it almost funny, I guess, because to us, it wasn't an option to get up and keep going. That was just what we had to do because the don't get up just wasn't an option. And, um, and, you know, here, these, these are people who just clearly haven't, they haven't had to go through that aspect of grief, whether they've never experienced grief or whether they just haven't experienced that particular type of grief, um, it was just a matter, I think, of having to to learn to not judge it, to kind of learn not to... They didn't mean it. I may have taken it offensively, but they didn't mean it that way. So let me try to maybe think about where they're coming from. And some of that change in perspective you have when you go through grief. And how I think you're able to look at things a little differently. And, you know, even appreciate this small moment where someone absolutely said the wrong thing, but we could kind of laugh about it afterward and just be like, well, they meant well, or, you know, they tried that you were saying about how people would fear being too close to grief or fear saying the wrong thing. And a part of me just wants to say, just try, don't worry about saying the wrong thing. Because ultimately, yes, the wrong thing is probably going to be said at some point by someone on some day, but I would rather people try to talk to me and try to say something. I think just try to avoid me and try to avoid the situation that exists. I know that Stephen Shelley and I, I think we started to experience that during that time I was living with them. Was almost any instance, you know, to talk about Jordan, to, to experience the story, to still have him in our life was better than people just avoiding us and us having to pretend like he doesn't exist or like we aren't going through grief, right? As if this doesn't 
isn't such a large part of our life. I do think you have to, as crazy as it seems, you have to look at the humor sometimes with grief. You really do. I mean, you can't avoid that, you know, comedy tragedy, you know, it's the flip side of the same coin. You know, you've seen that in the drama and tragedy, you know, in comedy, one guy smiling, one guy, you know, crying. That's, that's life. And I think there are times where somebody will be inappropriate, will say something completely ridiculous. You do have to laugh at it. And you realize they're on the outside looking in, but they're going to be there. Again, the one guarantees, no guarantees, but that's a guarantee. They will be there. So they're, they're novices. We're experts. We're living it. They're novices. I do have to say we've heard an awful lot of comments that were actually very questionable. Um, <laughs> it, it got to the point where we would walk away and we we're like, do you think that's the worst comment we've ever heard before? Like, no, I remember this other one. Top ten, yeah, top did, ten. Yeah. <laughs> David Letterman's top ten list of most inappropriate yes. comments from people trying to help you get through grief. It could be at the most could be, awkward one we've heard, maybe, maybe. But you're right. Sometimes we could find, you know, that that laugh with it and that that light out of that moment. Which I have to say, as being a teacher and working with uh, kids right around Jordan's age. Because I started off teaching fifth grade, and so they're ten and eleven in fifth grade, and Jordan passed right after eleven, uh, right at eleven, right after fifth grade. And now I teach fourth grade, you know, and they're nine and. 10. And I thought that was going to be harder than it actually was working with them. I remember getting my first job, and I was thinking, "Oh my gosh, how am I going to work with ten and eleven year olds all day? Look like him and act just like him." But in so many ways, I think it's a blessing that I get to see them and I get to to be with them and work with them and just you know, love on them in this way that I don't get to love on Jordan in that same way anymore. You know, I still love him. And I still think about him all the time, but it's not going to be in the same manner anymore. And you see such a variety of children and different backgrounds. And as we say how people might say the wrong thing, parents will say, ugh, I'm so done with him. You can keep him. And I'm like, done. I would love to have them in my life and because I know what it's like not to. And I know that the parent is joking. You're done with something. But like I said, that perspective change on my end. I'm like, absolutely. I would love, I would love that. You know, I would, I would love to have that experience to have them back in my life. And, and so I take that as a blessing every day that I get to go and spend my day with people I think are the coolest people in the world. They just have the funniest perspectives and just this kind of pure way of looking at life. And I think I've tried to focus so much more on that positivity and that, that of looking at the world. And it has definitely impacted me and definitely given me a neat perspective with them. And I think knowing that so much more now, like after losing Jordan, knowing that life's not permanent and nothing's guaranteed. And here I am teaching children who any one of them could be Jordan someday. It's such a, an interesting view 
to be there and just just to want to embrace every day and want to teach them to embrace every day because I, I, I want that for them. I want them to just appreciate the positivity of the day or the whatever comes in that day and not take things for granted. And so we, we appreciate, we celebrate every birthday. I will tell you, we celebrate every birthday in our school day and uh, we appreciate all the little things and they love it. So at some point we grow out of that. And we, as adults, I think, start to lose that appreciation for all the little things. But sometimes, you know, a kid will come up and tell you, the most, it sounds like the most mundane little thing. And they're so excited that it happens. And I want them to have that. I want them to have that appreciation. For every little thing that brings you appreciation and happiness in your day. Because you deserve that. Everyone deserves that. And we start to lose that, I think, as we grow older. And I think that that's one of my perspectives that has come back is that that appreciation for all the little things and celebrate, you know, eat dessert. Like Uncle Steve says, eat dessert every day. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you mentioned that because, you you know, you ask a little kid, what do they want out of life? They'll just say, I want to be happy. And you ask somebody, 45, 50 years old. Well, I want my 401k to be at this level. And I want, I want some muni bonds and this and that. And then you realize the kid's smarter than the 40 or 55 year old guy talking about his 401k. The 401k is transitory. It's, it goes up, it goes down. It doesn't bring happiness. It doesn't bring joy. It can buy things that temporarily might give you a, lift of joy, but it's going to fade. It's going to go away. Whatever it is, a car house, whatever it, motorcycle, they all break. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's all transitory. And so it's interesting to hear you say that because in the circle of life, after going through what we all went through, we're sort of back to the little kids. What do you want? You just want the happiness, all the other stuff that, you sort of go through the timeline of life to, you know, get an education, get a job, do this, this, and this, you know, it's all the fluff. It's not the essence of what your life should be about. And I think if you're a child, you see that, but also if you're smart and after you go through grief, you see it. Because you see everything else, it does. It is just temporary, and it's not going to last. The things that last are the experiences, are the love. I and I don't think I've met anyone yet that's lost somebody that they really love that wouldn't say, "You know what? I would give up everything I have just to have them back." The simple joy. Yeah, I think it does. It changes the priorities a bit and changes what matters so much in your life. But truthfully, I think in a, in a good way, I feel like I prioritize the more important things now. And like you said, you know, people might have been so worried about the retirement plan or what's in the bank account or this or that thing and having all of these items. And ultimately I feel like I've learned early on now what really matters for me and what, what does bring me happiness and what 
and living with Steve and Shelley, going through that with them as well. While going through my own grief, we learned what, what really mattered and what was important. What was worth the effort and what was worth our time. Because time is so important. And I think you definitely learned that going through grief. And then that's that, that one commodity you can't get back, you can't get more of. Right. And mm-hmm. that, that's just such a priceless thing to have. So important. You're wise beyond your, beyond your years. <laughs> no, seriously, because a lot of people don't learn that till well, 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 many decades down the road, which is a shame because you can't get it back. You know, we're all here with so many breaths you get on this planet. And when that number's up, that number's up. And you can't get them back. And that's the one thing I think you got to realize. It's, 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 it's finite. It's not infinite. And when you lose somebody, you realize that. Yeah, that it's not. I wanted to thank you for coming on today and, and talking with us. I know it's a tough subject for you. And uh, I know you saw us at our worst. And uh, I just wanted to thank you for coming on and sharing with everybody. Absolutely. Really appreciate your uh, insight. I really think I've learned a lot. So I can't thank you enough for um, opening up to us and giving us a new perspective on the grief process. I think it was very informative and very helpful. Thank you. And thank you for letting me share today. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today with Elizabeth Smelsky on Hope Through Grief. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week. Stay well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Hope Through Grief with your co-hosts, Marshall Adler and Steve Smelsky. We hope our episode today was helpful and informative. Since we are not medical or mental health professionals, we cannot and will not provide any medical, psychological, or mental health advice. Therefore, if you or anyone you know requires medical or mental health treatment, please contact a medical or mental health professional immediately.